Excuse me. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. For the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my de deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, before I get started, there are some study books at the front that uh, can I encourage you to grab one on the way out if you want to get the most out of this series. So we're going to be in Philippians for the next six weeks. If you want to get the most out of this series, then let me encourage you to grab a study book. There's uh, a reading plan in this uh, so that we can read together as a church, Philippians and a few other places in the Bible. There's also some uh, family devotion ideas uh, if you have a family and are reading through this stuff with them uh, and then there's the growth group uh, studies as well in this booklet so let me encourage you to grab one of those books and to join with us as we work through this series uh, to get the most out of that series uh, out of this let's pray and then we'll get into God's word Heavenly Father thank you that you are uh, an awesome God thank you that as we come here this morning, wherever we have come from, however we've gotten here, that you are still God and that you are still good. Thank you for the gospel, Lord. Thank you for the good news that we can be saved in Jesus. We pray this morning as we hear that message once again, as we are challenged in our faith, that we would leave this morning uh, on fire for you, living for something greater. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been told uh, or have you ever tried figuring out what your life purpose is? So a few weeks ago, I was told to figure mine out, but I was told to figure it out in a place that you probably wouldn't expect. It was actually on a YouTube ad, and it was from this guy. I don't know if you've seen this guy before. Maybe you've seen him, but he's probably one of my favorite guys that makes YouTube ads, if that's even a thing. But, but he makes a couple of YouTube ads, and uh, if you skipped through the first 15 seconds, you know, you get them, you watch it, you got 15 seconds, you skip on. If you did that to one of his ads or both of his ads, maybe that was you or maybe you were the sucker like me that kept watching it. And if you miss those things or if you don't know who this guy is at all, let me fill you in on who this is. So this guy's name is Ty Lopez. 
right? He is a guy that's clearly doing pretty well for himself. On his first ad, he's driving some Lamborghinis. He, he, he comes into his garage, sorry, he says, look, I've just bought this new Lamborghini. I've been driving in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, he says, you know what I love more than uh, earning? It's learning, it's knowledge. He, he looks over to his bookshelves. There's seven new bookshelves with 2,000 new books. on. He's clearly doing all right for himself, but it's the second ad that really got me. So he does his own version of Cribs in this second ad. If you don't know what Cribs is, it's an MTV show where they go around to nice homes and look at all these nice homes. The thing is though, anyone that watches Cribs will never own one of these Cribs, but maybe that's why they watch them. But, but this guy does his own version of Cribs. And like, he's got a great house. So massive pool, credit to him, big soccer field, basketball court, uh, 16 bedrooms, 18 bathrooms, and then because we all judge houses on how many doors they have, he tells us 58 doors. Right, he's doing pretty well for himself, but he says this thing over and over again in this ad. He says, find your life purpose, figure out your life purpose. Again and again, he says, figure out your life purpose, and he tells us what his is. He says his is to live the good life. So chasing health, wealth, love, friendship, whatever else, cars, his life purpose is to live the good life. But, but he says this one thing, so no matter how much you want to punch your computer screen when this ad comes up, he says this one thing that there is truth to it, and this is what he says. He says, find your life purpose, whatever you do, don't stay lost, right? Find your life purpose, whatever you do, don't stay lost. So no matter how much you hate this guy and just want to get onto your cat video, there is some truth to what he's saying here, right? Whatever you do, don't stay lost. And see, those of us who, we kind of know this, right? Because your life purpose is what causes you to get up in the morning. It's what motivates you to do the things that you do, to get up and go into your life and do the things that you do. And you'll know if you haven't figured out your life purpose or have been in that situation where you haven't known what's going on, you kind of do feel lost, Right, so there's actually some truth to what he's saying. So what we're going to do here at Southside in the next six weeks is we're going to watch this guy's video. No, we're not going to do that. But what we are going to do is get into God's word because what we see in God's word is that God is clear on what our life's purpose is. And what we see is that it's not living for comfort. It's not living for a new Lamborghini or a new home. It's living for something greater than that. And so we're going to look at Philippians, a book of the Bible for the next six weeks and again and again, Paul is going to show us that there is more to life than what's around us. He's going to show us that we can live for something greater. So let's get into that. Let's figure out, let's find out what Paul's saying. If you have a Bible there, have them open in Philippians chapter 1. It all begins in chapter 1, verse 1. This is what it says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Philippians is a letter. These first few verses are basically the envelope of the letter, right? You see who it's to, who it's from. It's Paul and Timothy, but really it's Paul, right? And we see that through the first person language throughout this book, through the way he talks about Timothy in third person. So it's from Paul, it's to real people in a real time and place in Philippi to the church in Philippians. And he says, basically, I hope you're doing well. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory uh, and praise of God. Paul starts his letter, and what do we see that he starts with? He starts with the fact that he loves them, that he genuinely cares about, right? We can see that. It's clear in this that he has a real relationship with these guys. Now, the beauty of this is we actually see where this relationship with this church begins. So if you've been reading Acts lately, we see how in Acts 16, and in uh, the Bible reading plan, we'll get to this on day two, we, we see how this relationship with the Philippians begin, began. So I'll give you the highlights because it's pretty cool. Right, so Paul and Silas go to Philippi. While they're there, a woman named Lydia becomes a Christian, basically eavesdropping on a conversation Paul's having with a few other people about what the gospel is. Right, there's a fortune teller that follows them around for three days. He, that She annoys them, and so finally he casts the demon out of her, which is pretty cool. But her owners get frustrated, put them in jail. They're in jail, right, locked up. An earthquake comes, their chains fall off. The jailer's about to kill himself because he's let the people go. Paul says, don't kill yourself, we're still here, and then, of course, tells them the gospel and him and his whole family become Christians. This is how the relationship with this church began, right? And Paul starts by reminding them he has a real relationship. He's saying he loves them. So we see this, don't we? In verse 3, he says, I thank God for you. In verse 4, he says, I pray with joy for you. Verse 7 and 8, he says, God knows how I love you and I love you like Christ loves you. And then verse 9 and 11, we see how he's praying for them. Paul tells them he loves them. And this is important, right? It's really important that this church gets that he loves them. Why? Well, the same reason kids need to know that their parents love them. Right? So one of the reasons that kids need to know their parents love them is because when parents put in boundaries, it's not because we hate the kids, right? We don't tell our kids, don't play near the road because we hate them and know that the road's the best place to play, right? We, know, we don't do that. We love our kids. So we tell them, don't play near the road because we love you. We're not trying to rob you of joy, but bring you joy and look after you and, and think about your future. Right? This is kind of the same for Paul here. He loves these people. So what he's going to say in the rest of this book is not to rob them from joy. Right? He's not trying to steal from them joy. He wants to bring them joy. He lo- he wants to, he's got their future in mind. And so what he does is he starts by saying that he loves them and then he goes on to what's important. And so what do we see in this greeting is important? Well, it's got to do with their faith, doesn't it? Did you see that? It's got to do with their faith. So verse 4, he reminds them of their partnership. Sorry, verse 5, of their partnership in the gospel. Verse 6, he's confident that God will finish what he started in their faith. And then verse 9 to 11 He's reminding them that his prayer is for them, that they keep growing, that they keep going in love and insight and depth of knowledge so that when Jesus returns, they will still be there trusting in Jesus. Right? He's reminding them of what's important. It's their faith and their faith in the gospel. Right? So Paul loves these people and he's reminding them of what's important. It's the gospel. And that should be obvious because of what the gospel is. Right? It should be obvious why. If, if he loves these people, he's reminding them of the gospel because of what the gospel is. 
right? So the gospel is good news. Literally, that's the word. That's what it means, good news. But let's be honest. It's better than good news, right? It is the greatest news that we'll ever hear in our whole lives. And and using the language that Paul uses in this book, it's the great news that we will be saved from destruction, right? See, Paul uses that language in chapter 1 at the end of chapter 1 and then again at the end of chapter 3. It's the good news we can be saved from destruction. So, of course, he's reminding people he loves of the gospel, right? The good news that they can be saved from destruction. See, the reality for all of us is that at some stage we've either rejected or rebelled against God. That's the reality, right? At some point we've either rejected God or rebelled against him. And so since we have, we deserve destruction. God should punish us. He should. We deserve destruction. But the gospel is the good news that in Jesus we can be saved. In Jesus we can have life. And it's not just saved from bad stuff. It's not just saved from destruction. It's saved to good stuff. right? It's saved to heaven to be with Christ forever. And it's not playing on the clouds, playing the harp on the clouds, eating sweet chili filly. Right? We get that. Heaven's not like that. It's better than that. It's greater than that. It's kind of like earth, but better. Right? With no sin, no suffering, no death and Jesus. And so when Paul starts, he says, I love you, but he's reminding them of the gospel. He's reminding them of what's really important, of what they should really be living for. This is the thing that should make them wake up in the morning. This is the thing that should drive them to do what they do. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. It's the good news that they can be saved. But the beauty of this is that Paul doesn't just say you should be living for the gospel. He shows us what it looks like. This is what it looks like for Paul to live for the gospel. He shows us from verse 12. Have a look at verse 12. This is what he says. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul is living for something greater. We can see that, can't we? We can see that he gets what life is all about. It's the gospel. And we should be able to see that from the fact that Paul says, what's happened to me has been a good thing. Right, so this is not some guy in Brisbane who grew up in Brisbane. Right? We get that, don't we? This is not some guy that grew up in Brisbane, went to school in Brisbane. Uh, he played soccer down the road. He's gone to university, studied engineering, looks back on his life and goes, yeah, that was a good thing. This is Paul. Right? He's been whipped for the gospel. He's been beaten for the gospel. He's been, they've tried killing him by throwing rocks at him. He's been shipwrecked. And now he stands pretty much alone in jail in Rome. And he's saying, what's happened to me is a good thing. How can he say that? How can he say that what's happened to me is a good thing? It, it's because he gets the gospel. He gets that his life is about the gospel. It's about Jesus. He sees the bigger picture. Right? It is clear that he sees what life is all about, that he's been called to something 
greater. He sees that life is more important than his circumstances, than what's happening in front of him. He gets the bigger picture. It's kind of like what happened this week. So Wednesday night, uh, New South Wales finally won a game of origin, right? Good on them. They finally did it. Genuinely happy that they won their first ever game. No, their first game of origin. And it was a great game. I mean, you know, anyone who said that the refs, you know, stacked the game or were biased or whatever, that's ridiculous. You show me a stacked penalty count and I'll tell you that the 15 one's not that stacked. So anyway, New South Wales won. Good on them. Happy that they won. Uh, we were driving home and on the radio was Kevy Walters being interviewed. Now, it's hard not to like the bloke, really. He's just a great... So they're interviewing him after his team's just lost. And he's like, no, 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 it was a fantastic game. Uh, New South Wales were the better team. They were great. Even when Ryan Girdler, who's a New South Welshman, was stirring him up about how, you know, the stacked penalty... He said it was a stacked penalty game. It was stirring up... Kevy Walter said, no, no, don't take anything away from the Blues. They played well. They deserved to win. It was a great game, a great finish for the spectators. Now, now I'm sitting in the car going, you've got to be kidding me, right? Like, we just lost. Fire up, Kevy. You've got to get fired up. But, but why didn't he get fired up? Apart from the fact that he's a good bloke, he sees the bigger picture. Right, it's the third game. It didn't matter. Queensland had already won. He got the bigger picture. And so he could say... Yeah, whatever about the circumstances, we still won. He sees the bigger picture. And so his circumstances didn't really affect him because he knew what was going on. He could see the bigger picture. Paul is kind of like that, right? He sees the bigger picture. He gets what life is all about. He gets that he has been called to something greater than a new Lamborghini or a big home. He gets that his life is about something bigger than that, something greater than that. And so even what's happening for him, he's finding joy because the gospel's still going out, right? And we see this even more if we look at verse 18. We see this clearly when Paul shows us. This is what he says from verse 18. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Right, we should see so far already that joy is a big theme in this book. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I don't think he's talking about getting out of jail there. This is future deliverance in Christ on the final day. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always... Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Paul sees the bigger picture. He gets that he has been called to something greater than what's in front of him. And what does he say that is? Well, well it's clear in verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul gets that. He's living for that. He sees the bigger picture that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So firstly, to live is Christ. Paul says, if I'm here, it means fruitful labor for me. Paul gets that his life is about Jesus, 
not about comfort, right? So he goes to work to serve Jesus. He is at home serving Jesus. He hangs out with friends to serve Jesus. Paul writes letters to churches about Jesus. He gets whipped and flogged and jailed for speaking about Jesus. Paul lives Jesus. He lives every moment of every day for Jesus. He uses his holidays so that when he gets back refreshed, he can serve Jesus. This is what it looks like for Paul. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. To live means I'm going to live for Jesus. But for Paul, he also gets that this life isn't all that is, and he lives with a hope to the future. He says, to die is gain. To die is gain. Paul says in verse 23, if I depart, I get to be with Jesus, which is better by far. Paul understands that there is more to life than what's in front of him. It doesn't take an expert to realize that if all you've got is a Lamborghini, a great house, a few books, despite how rich you are, you are still poor. Paul says to live is Christ. I have a purpose-filled life, but to die is gain because I get to be with Jesus. Right? So Paul lives Jesus. He lives for Jesus. He does everything for Jesus. But then to die, he knows that he has a hope in the future that to die is gain. Paul gets that his life is all about Jesus. He gets that he's been called to something greater. We can see that, can't we? Paul absolutely gets what it looks like to live for Jesus. And he's doing that day in, day out, which is great for Paul, isn't it? It's great that Paul has got this down. But what about for us? Because I don't know about you, I feel like there's an element here where I read this and go, yeah, but this is Paul, right? He's an apostle. He saw Jesus. He does miracles in Jesus' name. He wrote half the New Testament. So, of course, this guy's got this down. But for me, well, that's just not going to happen. It's just never going to happen like that. It's kind of like what happens when you watch a tutorial. So, in our house recently elizabeth's been getting into my wife elizabeth's been getting into uh like calligraphy stuff writing stuff right like nice writing so just yeah good stuff anyway from time to time there's been tutorials on in her house about how to do letters and words and stuff better and so i've watched those videos now here's something you need to know about me you don't need to know it but you can know it uh, I never, in grade five, I never actually got my pen license, right? So that might not mean anything to you, but in the school that I was at, they kind of held back, you know, writing in ink before you could, you know, write neatly. And so grade six, they just give pens to everyone, but I beat the system, didn't get it. I am a messy writer, sometimes can't even read my own writing. Now, looking at these tutorials, I'm watching them, man, they make it look easy, right? Like just the most easy thing that you've ever done in your life, these beautiful letters, beautiful sentences, stuff that people would pay serious money for. But something happens between the time when I watch this tutorial and pick up a pen and start doing it for myself. All of a sudden it becomes the hardest thing that anyone's ever attempted to do. And so I'm watching this stuff going, well, that's great, but for me, it's never going to happen. Maybe you've felt that. Maybe from time to time you've felt that. Maybe it's been a cooking show, right? And they make this beautiful souffle and, you know, you get home, you make this thing. It just, just turns out it doesn't taste good. It doesn't look good. The kids won't eat it. Your husband won't eat it. Sorry if that's too close to home. But, but maybe you've felt that, right? The way you make something and it's just like for the chef, you go, yeah, that's great. But for me on the ground, it's just never going to happen. I feel like one more. I feel like my favorite one is when you're watching the cricket show 
uh, during some test match or whatever, and Shane Warne gets up to show you how easy it is to bowl leg spin, right? And then you go in the backyard and you attempt to do it, and it just flies everywhere. You can't even land it on the pitch, right? And so there's a level there where you look at the person doing it, you go, it's great for them, right? I'm glad that they've got it, but for me, it's never going to happen. I, I feel like there's a level of that with Paul, like Paul wrote Philippians. He, he does miracles in Jesus' name. This is a guy who gets it. Of course he gets what it means to live for Jesus. Of course he gets this. He's got it down pat, that he is called to something greater. But what about for me? What about for me on the ground in the level that for someone who doesn't do miracles in Jesus' name, who, who isn't an apostle, who hasn't written the New Testament, what about for me? Well, that's actually where Paul goes. And what we see is that Paul speaks to the church in Philippi, the church in Southside, to us as individuals and as a community, and he shows us what this means for us. And so it all starts, it, it all, he does that in verse 27. This is what he says. Have a look. Verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, he's saying, to a persecuted church who would be in jail for trusting in Jesus, who might have lost family, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for, for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you'll be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? Worthy of the gospel. And again, he touches on what the gospel is. Did you see that? So he's saying, if you get this as individuals and as a community, if you're living for something greater, then people will start asking questions about you. Why are they living for something more in their life? And to them, it'll be a sign that they're going to be destroyed. But to you, it'll be a sign that you're saved. This is the gospel, that we can be saved from destruction to a new life, that we can be saved to life in Christ. Right? And so he says, live a life worthy of the gospel. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us here today as we join together here at Southside? What, what does that actually mean for us? Well, if you've come to church this morning and you're not a Christian, right? you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus and your belief in in Jesus. So maybe you've just come this morning because someone just kept pestering you to come to church and you finally gave in. Maybe your parents made you to come made you come here this morning and the only reason you're here is cuz your parents made you. Maybe you're here for another reason. Maybe you want to be here but you're not yet a Christian. Then hopefully you can see for us just how important this thing is. Right? I hope you can see that this really matters right christians aren't christians because we need religion to get us through life christians aren't christians because we don't think that much and just like the sound of christianity we are christians because this thing matters right this really matters and because jesus came died rose again and said there's something greater to live for that's why we're christians not because we need something to get us through life but because of jesus 
right? And so if you've joined us here today, right, I, I genuinely hope that you feel welcomed by us, that we talk to you, that we love you. I hope you stay for a cuppa and drink some tea. I hope you join with us in that. But more than that, we hope that you trust in Jesus and can see that there is something greater on offer. That there is something greater for you to live for than just what's in front of you. That Jesus is greater than anything else. But if you are a Christian here this morning, if you trust in Jesus, then well, we know that being a Christian means we trust in the gospel, right? Like we're not Christians because we're at church. We're not Christians because we do religious stuff. We're Christians because we believe in Jesus, his death and resurrection, the good news of Jesus. So what does it mean for us if we are Christians? What does it mean for us to live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, it means that we have a life that's driven by the gospel. We wake up for them in the morning for the gospel. We live lives focused on the gospel, for the gospel. We take Paul's words from verse 21 and we make them our own. To live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what it means for Christians to live a life worthy of the gospel. So, so to live is Christ. This is hard for us in Australia, right? To live Christ. It's hard for us in Brisbane. So I was talking to... No, I wasn't talking. I heard some stories about some people from the persecuted church this week. So uh, from the church in Iraq and places like that. It's interesting what happens because as we hear about stories uh, in that, we feel for them, rightfully, we feel for the persecuted church where they face life and death and persecution uh, day in, day out for their faith. And so we feel for them, we pray for them, we um, ask that their lives would be easy because we know that life's not meant to be like that. And, And so we feel sorry for them. But it's interesting when you talk to some of them, they actually feel sorry for us. Doesn't that seem crazy to you? That someone from the persecuted church, from Iraq, who's facing suffering for their faith, feels sorry for someone in Brisbane? But see, the reason they feel sorry for us is because we read the words to live is Christ, to die is gain, but they know these words for themselves. Right? They know day in, day out that to live is Christ today. And if I die today, it's gain. They get that. And so they see the danger and that it's hard to live in Brisbane. I mean, there's a story of a pastor who for 10 years, for 10 years in, in one of these places was going strong, where he was facing death day in, day out for his faith. 10 years, right? Going strong, serving Jesus, doing his thing. It took him six months in America. Six months and he became addicted to porn and was no longer a pastor. It's hard for us in Brisbane to live Christ, to live this out, to live Jesus. And the reason it's hard for us to live Christ is because our culture and our world tells us that to live is comfort. And to die is the end of that comfort. Right? We, we hear that all the time. I feel that all the time. We get it from our TVs, from our computers. To live is comfort and to die is the end of comfort. But God is calling us to something greater. He's calling us to live for something greater than what's in front of us. He's calling us to live for Christ, right? Something that is far better, far more valuable, something that won't fade away like comfort. He's calling us to live for Christ. 
So, so how do we figure out if we're doing that? Or how can we tell if we're doing that? I think there are some questions that we can ask on our own lives. And, and the questions come down to basically this. Am I living for comfort or am I living for Christ? Right? So, so let's think about that. In our jobs, am I working hard so that I can get comfort, a, a bigger house, bigger car, maybe just more security on the mortgage? Or am I working hard for Christ? To give more to Christ? Am I hunting for the promotion so that I can have more security, more comfort? Or am I hunting for the promotion so that I can get more money to give to Christ? Right? We see how this works. Am I working for comfort or am I working for Christ? At home, am I raising my kids to know that we as a family chase after Christ? Or am I raising my kids to show them we chase after comfort? Right? And, and I think most of this happens not by what we say, by what we do. So if they look at what we're spending our money on, what we're spending our time on, could our kids tell we live for Christ or we live for comfort? Education's a big one with our kids. Right? Are we reminding our kids that what's more important than an A plus is that they trust Jesus? What's more important than their education is trusting in Jesus. What's more valuable than studying, than, than homework? Not that those things are bad, but what's more valuable than that is reading their Bible, investing in their relationship with Jesus. Are we reminding our kids that school is about comfort, but that life is about Christ and there's more, than, more to life than just comfort? Right? At home as well, when we're disciplining our kids, are we just getting angry at our kids because they're disrupting our comfort? Right? You know what I mean there? We're, they're embarrassing us, they're just getting in the way, and so we get angry at them, we get frustrated at them. Or are we disciplining our kids out of love, showing them that disobedience is sinful, but that Jesus died for our sin? Right? You see how there's a difference there, living for comfort or living for Christ. With our friendships, are we, with our Christian friends, are we reminding them of the hope we have in Jesus? Are we pointing them to Jesus? Are we picking them up on their sin? With our, are we intentionally making friends with non-Christians, hoping that they can see Jesus? Or are we just living for comfort, using people around us? Right? You can see how this works. The question over and over again in all of life, am I living for comfort or am I living for Christ? Because God calls us to something greater. He calls us to something greater than what's in front of us. But again, it's half the story, isn't it? To live is Christ, but to die is gain. We live lives for Christ, but we know that to die is gain. And here at Southside, didn't we get a beautiful example of what this looks like earlier this year? So if you weren't with us, one of the beautiful older women of our congregation, uh, Judy, a, a sister, a mother, grandmother to those of us here at Southside, uh, she got told that she had two to, uh, two to six months to live. Heartbreaking to those of us who loved Judy and had been loved by Judy. Heartbreaking for us. But when she was told this, and I don't think I'll ever forget this for the rest of my, lives, and I, my life, and I can only pray that one day I'll finish like this, but you remember what she said again and again when she was told she had two to six months to live? She said, this is my ticket to heaven. My ticket to heaven, she got that to die was gain because she got to be with Christ. Right? Death is heartbreaking. It hurts. It's painful. But for the Christian, it's gain because we get to be with Jesus. Right? To live is Christ. But we live knowing that this isn't as good as it gets. 
that to die is gain. Now, we've got to hold the tension where if I'm alive, it means fruitful labor for me. But death is gain because I get to be with Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. So, so you can live for comfort. You can chase after that dream job. You can pursue the promotion. You can buy all the cars you want. You can get the nice house that you want. Or you can just get the house that's secure and comfortable. Right? You can chase after comfort. You can chase after relationships and things in this world. You can go after sex and drugs and out. You can do that. But if that's all you've got, you've got nothing compared to what we have in Jesus. You have nothing because what you brought in this world, you will leave this world with nothing. But for the Christian, we came with nothing, but we found Christ. And so to live is Christ and to die is gain. I hope those words ring in your head this week. I hope as we go to the doctor that we hear to live is Christ, to die is gain. I hope when we pray for someone, we hear to live is Christ, to die is gain. I hope that in everything, we hear the words to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because when we think about it, God has called us to something greater, something better than what's in front of us. He's called us to himself, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the greatest news that we will ever hear that Jesus stepped in front of us to take our place. Thank you that we were destined for destruction, but that Jesus stood in front of us. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, we know as a people that life gets busy and hard and, and we get distracted and so we forget how good the gospel is we forget to live for the gospel to live christ but we pray that this reminder this morning as we've come to your word as we've heard your word that this reminder wouldn't just last tonight wouldn't just last this week but for the rest of our lives we would be driven by christ that we would live christ knowing that to live is christ but that we have a hope of something better of something greater to die is gain Please, God, help us see this truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.